from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. Listeners, this week is a very special episode as we bring it to you live from the ICC New York Conference. I gotta say, it is dope being back in person after a long last couple of years. It's so good to see people face to face, laugh, catch up with colleagues and connect with new ones, make new friends too. By the time you hear this, the conference will likely be over, but mark it on your calendar now. I'll also be at ICC Miami at the end of October, and it would be awesome to see you there. So sign up. Usually, we book our guests for each episode weeks in advance. It's an effort to keep the trains running on time and to give our awesome editors an opportunity to bring the magic that is this show. Thanks, guys. To you each week. With this week's guest, that's not exactly how it happened. It was the definition of impromptu, and he was gracious and accommodating. I'm talking, of course, about Professor Lucas Mistellas. You might have heard of him, or at least one of the major projects that he oversees, the Queen Mary University of London Survey. It is one of the most read publications in the field, and it represents empirical insights into practices going on around the world of international arbitration. Lucas is a wealth of information on both commercial and investment arbitration, and he gave us a cool behind the scenes look into the survey. On top of all that, he talks about the different pathways and journeys one might have in international arbitration, and it's all around just a fun episode. So sit back, grab your survey clipboard and digital pins, and enjoy my conversation with Lucas Mastellas. And we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, what did I tell you last week? We have an action-packed, a great second half of season four. And that train continues right along with our guest today. We have a very special guest with us who is a professor and a leading voice in the world of commercial international arbitration. I'm speaking, of course, as you would have just heard in the intro, Professor Lucas Mastellas. Lucas, welcome to the show. Very good to be here. Great. Professor, it's a pleasure to have you here in the digital studio. Um, I know this is an episode that our listeners will be excited for, and so um, we're not going to waste any time. Let's jump into it. As we jump into it, jumping into it in the tales of the tribunal lingo means that first question that I ask all of my guests, who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? Well, I mean, uh, as a professor, I think quite a bit of who I am and what I do is in the public domain. Um, I'm Greek by birth and nationality, and I have been outside Greece for the last 32 years. 
Um, I had a bit of a nomadic existence. Um, I lived uh, after Greece in France, Germany, uh, Ukraine, Poland, and came to England in 1998, where I have been more or less since, with a few interludes of um, spending time in Singapore and the US, um, and a couple of smaller um, assignments in Cambodia and, and Guatemala. Sure. So you have literally been a little bit of everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that, that, that would be a fair comment. I haven't spent uh, much time in Africa. I visited quite a bit in Northern Africa, but that's uh, a continent that uh, I'm yet to explore. Well, great. Yeah, the next 32 years can be there. <laughs> I would hope so. I mean, yeah. uh, um, as world organization evolves, one should really try to uh, make every effort to develop um, areas where and regions where reputation is not as developed. And Africa, I think there's a lot of things going on. So I see a lot of very positive signs. So I wouldn't be surprised if my work takes me there in the next few years. Yeah, that's right. That's a fair point. Um, we definitely are going to get into your work. But before we do that, let's rewind just a little bit. So you've talked a little bit about the places that you've lived. Um, Let's, I'm sure the listeners would be interested to know, how did you decide? Did you wake up one day as a, as a small, an eight-year-old Lucas and decide you wanted to be a world-renowned international arbitration professional? Or, or what was that story like? How did you find yourself in the legal profession? Well, when I was a teenager, perhaps um, 13 or 14, um, um, I read a, a biography of a diplomat, a quite famous Greek diplomat whose daughter was the editor of the most important Greek newspaper. Um, it was multiple volumes. And one of the things that he said is as a diplomat, uh, he had to study law. Otherwise, he could not um, enter the diplomatic corps. And I found his career and life very fascinating. So my aspiration at the time was to become a diplomat and, and do international law. And, uh, and therefore, uh, the only thing I had to study to get there uh, is, is law and try to be good at it. But as soon as I got to law school, my international professor told me that actually international law is not something that you can practice. I mean, you might work for a Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you might work for an international organization, but there's not much practice of international law. Um, and, and I asked him sort of inquisitively whether that's true or not. He was one of the arbitrators in the Western Sahara case. So he was doing, doing proper state-to-state -state arbitration. But he directed me to do more private international law, international business law. And the first professor I counted there was a civil procedure professor. He was very heavily involved in arbitration as well. So I thought that the entry into arbitration was through international law. And the entry, the entry into international law was via arbitration. Um, and of course, since then, that was the mid-late uh, mid 80s, there were hardly any BIT cases, very few very few published. Um, and of course, the driver of uh, international development is investment law. Sure. Sure. Okay. No, that's that's really interesting. And I, I'll say that I'm starting to notice a trend here because a lot of the guests on our show, Lucas, um, have said similar answers in terms of um, having aspirations of uh, international policy or diplomat, diplomatic relations, those types of things. Um, it seems like arbitration becomes a magnet for those types of folks. <laughs> Yes, and, and, and I think actually international law gives you quite a bit of grounding because 
you uh, you approach law um, not merely from a technical side of the law, but also from a policy. Um, and, and, and of course, that level of um, understanding of the law and economic and business relationships um, uh, makes somebody a better arbitration lawyer because an arbitrator who is very well, very well versed in law, but does not understand business, doesn't understand the world, will never be a good arbitrator. So um, um, as my uh, former secretary of mine used to say, um, uh, intelligence can be no substitute for common sense. And, and in arbitration, you need common sense. Uh, intelligence alone is not enough. That's absolutely true. And that's something we've talked about a lot on the show is that there is sometimes this little bit of a disconnect between the clients, the business people and the lawyers, you know, as if legal matters exist for the, their own sake and not for the sake of actually resolving the practical business implications therefrom. Uh, absolutely true. And, and I think um, it's also quite important that arbitrators have had experience as lawyers as counsel, because sometimes as an arbitrator, you find that some of the arguments that are being made are a bit bizarre um, or unique, <laughs> would be sort of the gentle way of expressing it. But sure. but you have to put your shoes into, uh, yourself into the shoes of the lawyer or the party, because sometimes that's the only argument that can be made, or is this is the only way the argument can be made. So, uh, and, and, and I think understanding counsel and understanding um, uh, uh, parties is, is, is critical. And the premise, I think, and I think it's quite important, the premise for arbitrators would have to be that every lawyer and every party is a decent party and a decent lawyer. And they just end in a dispute because disputes are inevitable. So if you start by judging parties and judging counsel, before you understand what they're going to say, then you're never going to be a good arbitrator. No, I think that, that all of those are, are fantastic points. And, and well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fresh, one final frustration I'll vent here and then we can uh, shift a little bit is, is exactly that is, is forgetting the underlying purpose of dispute resolution is to resolve the dispute, not just to give something for lawyers to do. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and I think what I, I, I tell my students is that the, the, one of the main differences of arbitration um, uh, from litigation is that in, in arbitration, everything is flat. I mean, the, the arbitrators are not sitting in an elevated sort of bench. They're sitting around the same table as the parties. Um, they don't have that state authority. And, and therefore, because they work with the, on the same level as the parties, um, uh, we, parties have to be able to express themselves the way they would like to and, and not be intimidated by the authority of the arbitrator. Quite to the contrary, I think the arbitrator is there, as you say, to help them. Yeah, but I mean, I'll, I'll say, and I, mean, I think you know as well as I do, even though that's the way it should be, and I think that it works like that sometimes, there is this sort of idea that maybe it's not a robe, but I don't know, like a, a blazer or a collar that, you know, arbitrators will sometimes find that feel at least the perception of where parties can get the perception that, I mean, this is kind of like a private judge and I should treat them as such. Yes, uh, I mean, the arbitrators are private judges, but the emphasis is on the word private rather than the word judges. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, touche, touche. Um, leaving that point there, um, uh, Lucas, one thing that I would like to, to, to walk through, and you just mentioned, I guess, in the, the end of your last answer, is your students. So you're a professor, you're at the Queen Mary University of London. Um, can you talk to us about that a little bit, about how 
you got you, you gave us the background of your internet your entry into international law international arbitration um how you got from that point to the university yes i think i think um while i was uh, before coming to england one of the big exposures to international law and that's not unique is the william cv smooth and and of course um, as a younger lawyer I had to work on smaller tasks in arbitration proceedings, but I haven't had the really uh, the, the full experience of an arbitration from beginning to the end. So, so when I came to Queen Mary, um, I came to take up a lectureship in international commercial law, um, not in international arbitration. But at the time, I, I became the, the first ever full-time member of staff at Queen Mary in arbitration. Um, the, the, the Queen Mary had since 1985 an arbitration center called the School of International Arbitration, um, founded by Julian Liu and, and, and Roy Good. But Julian was in practice. Um, Roy Good is a commercial lawyer. Um, and, and therefore, uh, in 1998, the beginning of 99, I became the first full-time academic. And becoming full-time academic, uh, but coming from understanding practice, I wanted to keep myself busy. So I took effectively a, a, a two courses program where we're teaching a, a generic commercial arbitration course, um, comparative and international, and a course in construction arbitration. I started developing programs in investment. Um, uh, we developed programs in energy disputes. We developed programs eventually in more specialist areas like sort of insurance, shipping, arts disputes, um, and then the um, sort of the investment course became two courses, became three courses. The commercial arbitration became multiple courses. We added advocacy skills, um, and I, I have been sort of um, very much involved in in growing up the, the, this program. Um, also, I have, been, I have been for 17 years director of the school. Um, what drove this development was the response of the students. And in the 25 years I've been at Queen Mary, it's very, very interesting. Sort of in 98, 99, a year when it was an excellent year, we have some very good students, including people like Susan Frank and Anne Hoffman, who are sort of bona fide arbitrators. Alex Silvermark, sort of um, um, Alex Rukendorf, all of them are doing a very good career in Joachim Knoll, all, all of them very successful in, the, in their own careers. Um, uh, the students were coming from Northern America, Western Europe. Uh, and, and then since Switzerland, perhaps, the, pop the population moved geographically to uh, Central and Eastern Europe, um, Central Asia, um, sort of Africa, uh, the subcontinent, Southeast Asia, and Latin America. And, and one saw the expansion of arbitration um, by looking also that students, I mean, there were years when we would have 25, 30 students from Brazil, when sort of arbitration was exploding in Brazil in sort of 15 years ago, or many, many students from Turkey, um, or, or students from, from Thailand. So, and, and that has been incredibly rewarding. And that meant that that became a very dynamic course because we had to be well-versed in, in the local needs and the local laws. Um, and, and so that's why our course has always been a, a comparative and international course. And, and it's been an absolute joy to sort of interact with all of these uh, students. 
Perhaps the final thing I should say on, on the students and my interaction, perhaps one of the least pleasant tasks I have every year is both at the beginning of the academic year and at the end of the academic year to tell the students that they are more arbitration students than their arbitration jobs. Um, in 2025, yes. it was just Queen Mary. Um, then there was the program in Stockholm. Then there was the meets in Geneva. Then Parisian University started having LLMs in arbitration. NYU, Colombia, um, Singapore, Hong Kong. Uh, so you just name it. So, so the market has expanded and, and there are more arbitration students than the arbitration jobs. And sometimes the best way into arbitration is by starting um, not from the main arbitration centers, but going back home to India or to Greece or to uh, Istanbul or, or to Buenos Aires or Shanghai, and then sort of develop a local expertise and then try to be seconded or get the job in a, in a bigger firm and, and, and get that experience. And and of course, the other way of, of being, being inflation in arbitration is working in-house. I think uh, particularly energy and construction businesses that have reasonably sizable legal teams they are involved in, in disputes all the time. And that's another good entry into, into the business. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I take issue with that. You know, being in one of these in-house folks of a construction energy company, we're not always involved with disputes. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, of course, the board doesn't want you to have disputes, but uh, yes, but they, they do happen. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, no, and I think that, that, that those are all great points. And I think the only thing I would add to that um, is there is also this perception, again, that that you have to have a job, specific, a job title that specifically says arbitration in the job title in order to be involved with international arbitration. And that's just simply not true. I mean, that, that can be one way, but there are many more doors if you just take it, you know, like you've said, maybe find a, a local alternative or find a way to be involved with the field otherwise. Yes, I, th I think I think originally, um, and I have been speaking quite a bit on that, and uh, I actually will put it eventually in a much longer paper. Um, uh, I think arbitration or being an arbitration lawyer originally meant being an arbitrator. Um, uh, sure, yeah. And then eventually, uh, from the 1980s, sort of firms like Kudak Brothers have created arbitration groups where almost everyone of whom is very big and important these days of the last 15, 20 years has been there, created the first arbitration group before Freshfields created their own arbitration group and other firms followed suit. But originally the arbitration work being, was being an arbitrator. And then of course the arbitration council was a dispute lawyer or litigation lawyer who routinely did more, quite a bit of arbitration. And, and then we have had sort of a number of other arbitration jobs being a secretary or working for an um, arbitral institution, um, uh, third party funders. Um, so, so, so we have many more arbitration jobs now than they were originally. And, and arbitration is a much more democratic profession. And because it's a much more democratic profession and people can enter without having taken a particular exam or a particular qualification, it is important that as a community, we embrace people who are a bit less experienced. Um, I think th I think there's an educational role that tribunals and institutions have to play, and and they have to play well because 
we have to be inclusive. I think I think we live in times that that sort of talk very much about diversity and inclusion, but in the habitation world, there's an element of special sort of social mobility. People who have never been in an arbitration, they come from a sort of a, a small country with no specialization in arbitration, and they, they happen to represent the party. We have to embrace them because the experience, the, the, the experience in their first arbitration is their understanding of arbitration, and the experience in their last arbitration is whether they're going to recommend it again or not. So, so we have to be cognizant of that. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of threads we could pull there. I mean, you know, I, I read a, a lengthy article about um, one of the arbitral institutions from um, it might have been the L.A. Times or, you know, a pretty large American newspaper that, you know, perhaps this was a style choice by the editor um, or the, the author. But they every time where they were talking about arbitrators and it had to be more than a dozen or, or two dozen times throughout the piece, they said these private judges, <laughs> which is again, I mean, it's not inaccurate to say it that way, but it's just, you know, the way in which they described and talked about arbitration made it seem as if these things were nefarious or, you know, seedy smoke-filled back rooms, or it just implied there are some legitimate criticisms, but maybe a fundamental lack of understanding um, by the greater, some people in the business community and some people in society at large about what we talk about, what we mean when we say commercial arbitration. And, and, and indeed, the New York Times a few years back ran a series of articles which were very critical yeah. of arbitration. But this is yeah. not what I would call arbitration. So, that, no. But this article was this year. This, this was this year. This was a couple of months ago. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So, all right. You know, we, we could go down a few rabbit holes here. So uh, we'll, I'll reel us back a bit. Um, um, you know, one of the reasons why we were so excited to have you on the show, Professor, is that you're involved with, you know, the Queen Mary University of London survey, QMEUL survey. It's, it's, it's quite famous, quite renowned throughout the field. And for those that are uninitiated or uninformed about it, it is this sort of, typically there's a theme or a specific topic that might, you know, sort of set the background to the survey. And it covers pressing and contemporary issues in international arbitration. At least that's how I I'd kind of think of it. And, and it gives you some empirical data to look at about practices, about trends, about all of those sorts of things. Um, at least that's my perception of it. And I, and I leave it to you, Professor. How would you describe the survey? Um, wh what exactly is it in your sort of understanding or from your perspective as someone that oversees it? Yes, I, I remember very vividly sometime in 2004 when Julian Liu, myself, and two um, partners of PwC had a lunch, um, and, and and for them, uh, as a matter of business development rather than marketing, uh, they wanted to understand how um, uh, sort of corporations think about arbitration, and and that's why we launched sort of this first uh, survey in 2005, 2006, um, and um, and and the idea was to only talk to in-house lawyers, not to arbitration, to, to the genuine arbitration users, not to talk to arbitration council or arbitrators, and see what are the perceptions that businesses have about dispute resolution, and 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 and, and assess what are sort of the myths and what is the reality, but from from a, from a sort of a distinct empirical sort of perspective, and. And 
all of the surveys had effectively a, a, a two parts. The first part was a quantitative element, was a, an online questionnaire, and they, were, they, have, they have a qualitative element, which is a one-to-one -one interview. Um, in the first um, two or three surveys, I did conduct the interviews myself, and I, I, I had the privilege of, of speaking to some 200 of the Fortune 500 um, general counsel, or at least counsel who is in charge of, of litigation and, and disputes. And, and in these olden days, of course, that was not very ecological. I had to travel, but I remember there were extensive trips to Houston and sort of to Sao Paulo, to um, uh, Switzerland, to Germany, to France, to Japan, um, to try to sort of um, harvest the data. And and we've always had also an, an incredibly impressive alumni of uh, survey leaders. I mean, we'll always hire somebody. I think the first survey was conducted by Emilio Niema, who's my professor and colleague. The second by um, Krina Baltak. Um, the third by Penny Martin, who is now partner with Three Crowns. Um, and, and you can go all along the list. So almost everyone has done incredibly well. So the first two surveys were entirely focusing on in-house council views um, and try to, to get questions which have not been asked before. From 2010, we started doing a series of surveys with um, um, White and Kate, and, and there the, the focus shifted a bit, and we looked at um, how the arbitration stakeholders um, think about certain issues. So, so the first topic, which was called choices, we looked first of all, what, what choice do you make first? Do you choose the seat first, or you choose the arbitral institution first, or you choose the applicable law, and and in what order you do things? Sort of some questions that sometimes we ask, but it's useful to have the people thinking about what they do first. Um, and then we had another um, uh, PwC survey, which we looked again at various industries. We knew that construction and energy are big on arbitration, but we didn't have enough data about financial services. We didn't have um, much data about TMT, sort of technology. Um, um, and, and that, of course, has created a series of surveys which we did with peace and masons focusing on technology media and telecoms um, construction infrastructure and, and this year on on energy disputes and with with the white and case we, we looked at these broader topics of um, that affect all the stakeholders in arbitration so we looked at innovation we looked at sort of challenges sort of um, we looked at diversity and so on um, I have to say that when we started the, the process, I never thought that it would be so important. So it is after the first um, the survey that the LCIA has talked to a number of in-house council, and the outcome is the corporate council and the arbitration group. I mean, in terms of impact, um, it's not just the survey and the 75 pages article published in the American Review. I think the fact that the in-house community created the corporate council and the arbitration group is perhaps more important than my article or the survey itself, <laughs> because there was never a coherent voice for the business community. Um, now, CCIAG has a, a, a seat at the, at the UN, so the, the um, and sort of do a lot of other things. So, I, 
it's 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 incredible how the surveys have taken up and how they have um, assisted the creation of policy. Um, have looked at sort of have um, sort of inspired legislators, um, institutions as well, um, and 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 yes, they have developed a life of, of their own. Uh, I cannot claim that I have been leading all of them. Um, colleagues of mine have also taken the lead in some of the surveys. For example, the last white engage was uh, conducted by you know, by my colleague Nora Gallagher. Um, uh, and so, and there has always been a, a teamwork attached to it. Sort of every survey has a focus group, and we try to get a, a lot of different stakeholders to uh, test um, questions before we put them to public. Sure, no, that that makes sense. Um, I, I, you may have said it, but uh, just to, to to clarify, um, how often is the survey conducted? So, so we started in the beginning to by having a survey every other year. So it was 2008, 10, 12, and then we just disrupted sort of the, they had 13, 15, 16, 18, and actually from 2018 to now we have had one survey every year, but but not all of the surveys are the same. Some of them were sort of still the broader surveys happen every other year. Um, but sometimes we have a sort of a slightly smaller one, which is either an industry focused, um, or for example, we had in 2020-2021 a survey on ISDS. We wanted to particularly understand what are the views of businesses about all these reform projects. Um, we talked to states, we, we talked to lawyers, we talked to NGOs, but, but we haven't really um, got a clear understanding of what businesses want. And one of the outcomes is that businesses don't care about, too much about ISDS because if they're of good size, they can negotiate an arbitration clause and they prefer mm -hmm. contract-based arbitration rather than reliance on the BAT. So, absolutely, no. That's that, that's a, 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 a well. That's a great point, and it sort of underscores that sort of two-pronged or two pathways. You know, whether or not you're a big enough actor with power that goes around, or you know, maybe Joe company or investor. Yes, and 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 what I've often said since I, I suspected it, but now I have the, the empirical data that the, the businesses that are going to be affected by a major reform of ISDS, if we go down the suggestions of the European Union, is small and medium-sized enterprises. So the, the multinational corporations first are not primary use, users of ISDS, with a couple of exceptions. Um, few, very few repeat players. Um, for example, sort of, um, we build has used it quite extensively, Veolia or various forms. But um, the traditional multinationals, oil corporations, have not used uh, ISDS. They used contract clauses. So we, we we create a problem for small and medium-sized enterprises, which is exactly the type of enterprises that the European Union wants to support. Um, sort of the in the European Parliament, the small and medium-sized enterprises lobby is one of the biggest ones. But obviously, they have that goes completely outside the radar. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in terms of thinking a little bit more about the survey, or sitting right on there, um, when you when we talk about the methodology of the survey, you talked already some about how the research is conducted and 
little bit about the quality control. I, I'm curious also to know about, you know, if there's any issues of dealing with or mitigating bias. So not so much, you know, for those listening at home, the idea that there's some malicious research taker, but more the idea that, you know, if you put out a wide net of uh, soliciting responses, but let's say a disproportionate number of people from a given place answer, how do you control or try to combat to make sure that the results are, are as balanced as they can be? Or, or do you do anything for that? Yes, I think that's um, that's that's a very good, a very important um, uh, point. I, I think um, we are trying uh, as much as we can to ensure that uh, results are not skewed by very um, substantial um, representation of one or the other uh, region, and and it seems to me that. Um, um, we we might sort of not been as successful in one or two occasions. For example, there is something uh, a, a few years back. Um, uh, it, it emerged from the surveys quite clearly um, that sort of the Asian seats have become very very prominent. So people started saying that actually Singapore and Hong Kong. Are more important than London, New York, um, or, or, or Paris. Perhaps, the, to be fair, the Navy Center was more important than London, but but certainly Paris or or or, or, or New York or, or Geneva. And, and and of course, we see that the economy is moving to Asia. We see that there's this sort of um, natural gravitation towards Asia um, in, in the era of, of, of sanctions, perhaps. The sanctions are approached differently in in Asia because some of, of the sanctions are don't have an impact in this in this part of the world. Um, and and if one sees the representation of the data, there's for example not always a very um, high uh, rate of response from North America, but there's always a good rate of response from Europe and a very good rate rate of response from Asia. There's an eagerness to take part in these um, surveys. So how do you mit we mitigate that? We mitigate that by not just have quantitative data, but also have qualitative data. So effectively, um, we we try to um, interview some of the respondents um, and try to scrutinize some of the responses to see whether the, the responses correlate with experiences and and um, uh, and sort of all their sort of aspirational sometimes. Um, and also we try to make sure that through the interviews we engage um, a diverse group of, of respondents that have not yet um, responded to. So either sort of a, from parts of the world or gender diversity. Um, and I think in the beginning when the, the responses were sort of 115 house council, um, the, that sort of the presentation was critical. And I think we always got it very, 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 very well. Um, the when the, the the responses became thousands uh, of several hundreds became a bit more difficult, but that doesn't mean that we have not sort of uh, sort of lost sight of that. So uh, sometimes you had extra campaigns targeting regions for to get responses or, or targeting particular parts of the stakeholders to do that. 
it, it, it is a challenge and, and it's critical for us um, and the success of the survey is that we take a very, very active role in monitoring the, the sample as it comes in and take action to sort of make sure that they will encourage responses from uh, other parts um, uh, of the world and, and different stakeholders. No, I, no, and I think that that's a, that's a, a important question, and I think that your answers are fair about World One. How in the world do you try and manage and, and balance a global exercise like this? Um, because at the end of the day, it's not as if you can require and like force an equal representation of respondents. Um, you know, the, and, and, and yeah. sometimes the problem is, for example, about the Northern American response rate. Um, I think culturally, certain people in Central Europe, for example, if you send them a questionnaire, they will take the time and do it immediately. And you send it to a busy sort of council in, in Houston, then you have to perhaps send a reminder uh, because it will go sort of, it's not the top priority. The top priority is to serve your employer or, 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 serve, um, or to serve sort of your clients. Um, and so, uh, so you need to get the right timing. So some people respond to questionnaire very well if they get it on a on a Thursday afternoon, um, but not on a Monday morning. So it's all of this psychology of of surveying that we have been tackling um, over the years, and I think we have become better. Um, we we also trained with a couple couple of social scientists um, in the beginning um, because we had to develop that capacity ourselves. I, I I cannot profess that I had any substantial empirical um, research experience before that point, but uh, I, I think I, I have accumulated quite a bit now. <laughs> yeah, lawyer lawyer by day, marketeer and researcher by night. I got yes, it. I got yes. it. <laughs> um, something to the importance of LinkedIn. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. Um, you know, one more thing that I'll ask you about the survey and then we'll, we'll sort of shift from there too. Um, what, if anything, can you tell us about the future of the survey? Um, is there, you know, sort of inside peak or inside knowledge you can give us about what's coming down the pipe? Well, um, <coughs> this this new survey is perhaps um, the most timely of all because we we talk about energy crisis all the time um and we also talk about sort of the future of energy uh, security of supply um, um sanctions um all of this comes into the new survey in fact we look at the one of the the survey has effectively two parts or maybe three but the first part is looking at sort of the the challenges of energy transition how effectively we start reorienting ourselves to new forms of energy, sustainable and renewable to most, uh, most critically. Um, and, 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 and then in that respect, we try to extract what the people in the know expect that the future disputes will be about, whether it will be more regulatory disputes or more technology disputes adjusting to the needs of modern energy um, uh, or whether there will be transi trans energy transition or decommissioning um, responses. So we have that sort of trying to map, uh, that's forecasting and we haven't done it before, but we try to forecast what type of dispute we might be getting. And actually we're all very excited about that. And then 
apart from the more general questions, then we take sort of sort of fossil fuels, um, renewable energy, nuclear energy, um, as particular sort of groups, and ask specialist questions within that part. Um, in the second part of this of the survey, we look specifically at um, what role dispute resolution can pay can play in this energy transition exercise. Um, a lot of people saw the energy transition as primarily regulatory disputes, but the decommissioning issues, the commercial sort of issues, what do you do, who, who bears the risk, who bears the costs. And, and in the third part, we have a number of questions relating to climate change, uh, broadly speaking. So it, it, it's a very broad and very um, survey, but also quite profound. It doesn't take superficially. Some of this data could have been harnessed a bit um, easier in, in an easier format with pure questions, and but we decided to go all out just to try to get as much as we can get. And, and I would expect that um, we will find some some quite a bit of interesting results. What is interesting is that um, we have seen so far quite a bit of um, spread amongst businesses lawyers, arbitrators, policy makers. Um, uh, and, and and I think the spread of, of, of the responses comes from a, a very, very broad group. I mean, there's uh, is work in progress. Uh, but as far as work, work in progress goes, I think we have quite a representative uh, sort of um, sort of sample already. And that's actually quite quite good fun. No, well, that look, that's exciting, and I, I, I will say, I'll, I'll out myself as the nerd here. I do get excited, and I'm always curious whenever I see the new survey results come out. So um, it's interesting to see. You know, we're, we're already waiting for the next one. Yes, I, I think um, uh, so. The, it's it's very. We hope that we get capture quite a bit of of, of a spread, and and I think as as we stand we have sort of almost every group represented. So we have from experts, sort of governments, um, in-house council, uh, um, executives in energy businesses. And we have a fairly good spread, for example, um, the, the American at the moment stands at about 10%, we, we can improve. The Asia is about 25%, sort of Europe is about 40%, sort of LATAM is uh, about 10%. I think we can improve in in, in, in the US, but we have also good representation from um, um, Middle East this time. Um, so, and, and interesting enough, looking at, at the energy sector, sort of the traditional sources, fossil fuel is about 30% and renewable is about 27. And then we have nuclear hydrogen. Uh, so a very broad sort of um, a spread of, of, of responses, again, with the need to perhaps do a bit better in Northern America. So I will be talking to a lot of organizations there from, um, to try to, to have the survey bit promoted. We, it's still open until the 12th of, of October, so we have quite a bit of time. Okay. Listen, I, I would be remiss if I didn't, if we spent the entirety of our time together only focusing on the survey. So there is um, just a couple more things that I wanted to, to talk about. And uh, as we head towards uh, you know, the end of our time. Um, 
you know, one of the things that you've written about, um, and you know, I have a few things written down here in my notes. We may only have a chance to address one of them. Is uh, har harmonization of arbitration procedure. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you found in your research and just give sort of maybe, I guess, an appetizer for the listeners at home and we'll include some links to your to your writings. Yes, I, I mean, I have um, origin. Harmonization was a topic that I've been interested for almost 30 years. Um, and, and the reason I got that interest in a, quite a bit of academic writing is by looking at the works of Ancitral or Unidra and all of the organizations which were harmonizing law on a substantive, substantive level. And, and, and I think um, in the medieval times, it appears that commercial law was always harmonized. So we had the disunification from the uh, early 19th century with sort of the new national codification from the French civil court to the German, etc. And And the, uh, the, the debate for harmonization started again in the um, 1960s and so that is still ongoing and as, as a result we have answered that. Um, I, I think in terms of procedure and, and the procedure um, there is a, a genuine tension here. Um, having a level of harmonization is significant for two reasons. One is we have a level playing field so people understand the procedure and they all use it the same way. At the same time, if, if procedure is harmonized, uh, you also reduce a lot of costs. For example, if you have a, a terms of reference system like the ICC, and all you have to do is a template, you just enter the names of the parties and the names of the arbitrators, um, no one can claim that they need sort of to work 10 or 12 or 15 hours for the terms of reference because that's an online document that you fill in and automatically it gets out. Sort of or procedure order number one, most arbitration tribunals will have a style of conducting the arbitration. Um, this could be harmonized by institutions. So you don't need, to, we just need to discuss a couple of details with the parties or the timetable. But we don't do that. And and I want, and so one tension is to get that so that people, especially who are not very experienced, can easily understand what's going on and they don't have to navigate between the differences of the LCIA or the ICC or AAA or or, or um, Singapore, or Hong Kong, etc. Et uh, and, and the other, and the, of course, the other side of the of the argument is that what the tension is, um, arbitration becomes a bit dangerous when one size, size fits all. And in my view, one of the problems with some institutions, which I would not name, uh, is that they have devised the procedure for cases which are between, let's say, 10 million and a hundred million dollars. But if the dispute is less than 10 million, perhaps even less than 5 million, the, the, the steps that they have in, in the rules to go through make the dispute effectively too expensive. And if the dispute is very, very substantial, sometimes the dispute is, might be very substantial, but procedure is very simple. And then we create sort of, sort of again, um, uh, we put in a straight jacket something that should not belong there. And I always felt that so what we need to have is sort of multiple velocity rules, sort of uh, not expedited or unexpedited. That's perhaps one thing. But, but we have to empower tribunals if it's a simple dispute about payment of an invoice which has, hasn't happened, or that you don't have to go through all of these groups and spend 12 months to, to get through that. So 
it could be done in a sort of a summer judgment um, uh, 60 days or 90 days process. Um, sure. So, so harmonize, but also in this harmonization, not think that everything is the same because the different arbitration, uh, different needs. I mean, construction has different needs. But there was a period, perhaps the result of a survey, that multi-tier dispute clauses became very popular. Multi-tier dispute clauses are very good for long-term contracts, whether construction, energy supply, PSAs, etc. But if you have a sales contract, why do you need to have a multi-tier contract? Some you deliver goods, the other didn't pay. Just have arbitration and paid or mediation if that's what you want. So, um, so I think harmonization means that we 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 collect collectively sort of apply ourselves as the collective wisdom, get something that is tested, tried, and and works. But that doesn't mean that there should not be scope for party autonomy or for variations where the disputes are particularly complex or particularly simple. And, and I think that's the, the one element that uh, is missing in the discussion. And I think institutions, um, arbitral institutions have become sort of multi-door dispute resolution centers. They have now mediation. They, they competed with mediation providers as well. They have emergency arbitration, which was effectively the, the task of the duty judge. You go to the court and expert and get something within 24 hours. Um, I think the only thing that institutions don't do at the moment but is assist with the enforcement or asset tracing. So that's perhaps uh, something that they could they could develop. So, um, but um, I think sometimes I feel that institutions are trying to have everything covered. They try to emulate judicial systems. And because it's a private judicial system, it should be done very sparingly, not so sort of expanding too much the scope of the work. Yeah, yeah, and and some things that you were talking about just there sort of dovetail and I guess what, what, what comes up in my mind as we're talking about this is if that's where we are in terms of understanding the status of how commercial arbitration works, then I wonder what trends you might see over the next five to 10 years in the evolution of commercial arbitration? Maybe something people aren't paying attention to. Um, I, 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 that's, that's interesting. I think there are two different trends. One is that a good part of the world is still tailgating the US in terms of expanding the arbitral subject matter. I think in the US, for a long period of time, almost everything is arbitrable. Uh, um, and outside the US, there has been quite a bit of hesitation to get um, there. Of course, in the in the US, there's a, a bit of a of a of of a tendency to to be to start becoming a bit more reluctant on certain elements, particular socially sensitive or consumer matters. Um, and there's been this sort of draft arbitration law, which my 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 friend Tom Carbonock describes as arbitracide, but never gone through uh, the Fairness Arbitration Act, I think it was called at, at some time. Um, so one trend is to do uh, to do that, to expand the arbitral subject matter. The second trend uh, I see, which is perhaps not necessarily, well, which is still very positive, 
is that more and more countries understand the need to cover species arbitral legislation. There's many, many countries in the world where they regulate arbitration as part of the civil procedure. And then that's when we could even countries like Germany, for example. But now you see that this distinct sort of international arbitration or, or France, but now that they're distinct international arbitration laws, which are a bit more liberal, which are just a, there's an element of harmonization very often following the model law um, the Astral model law, or at least the the principles encapsulated by the Astral model law. That's again a very positive uh, movement. And then I think as the arbitration de profession develops, and we have something which is more often referred to, perhaps wrongly, as the independent arbitrators, which I think the correct term should be full-time arbitrator rather than nothing, because all arbitrators are by definition independent or ought to be by definition arbitrators. But now we see people who write in their sort of signature of the emails, independent arbitrator as meaning full-time arbitrators. And because these people rely on arbitration as the sole um, revenue uh, stream, I think we have very much the discussion about regulating arbitrators or ethics, code of, code of conduct, again, which is a healthy discussion. Um, but unless something is done within a reasonable amount of time, um, sort of that need to regulate could go in different ways uh, and could be sort of not necessarily in the right direction. Sort of, for example, in my own view, and might be minority, people criticize double hunting, people being both arbitrators and counselors. I think there's nothing wrong with that. And particularly for younger colleagues of ours, that's the only way of getting experience because you might get one appointment every five or 10 years. If you don't do council work, when you have to do an appointment as an arbitrator, you're not, having, you're not going to have the experience. And somebody who might suffer from your lack of experience. Um, um, so uh, yes, I understand sort of the issue conflict, but but I, I think that that's been over-exaggerated. So, Positive trends, the expansion of the arbitral subject matter, so the, the more um, the, so the more national laws following the international standards, um, uh, the sort of neither here nor there, perhaps positive, perhaps negative, sort of the excessive focus on on, on regulation of arbitrators, particularly, um, and even our arbitral institutions in some places, which I think. Is also useful to think about. Um, and then the negative uh, trend I see in some Latin American jurisdictions, but also not uh, only there, is uh, that states have passed laws where they have a specific a special status in arbitration. For example, if we look at uh, the law in, in Brazil about arbitrating with public administration, where the non the private party has to pay the cost of the arbitration, arbitrate in Brazil, in Portuguese language, um, put everything up front, and if they win, they might get the money. Um, of course, that's a double-edged sword, because in Peru, that means that every state contract, every contract with the state of public administration has an arbitration clause. Is that the right arbitration? Is there some sort of a asymmetry uh, between the parties? That's all things that we don't talk often because at some time we want arbitration to expand, but, but uh, there is a lot of teething 
issues in all of these um, developments. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, and I think that, uh, look, uh, we, we've done as well as we could to try and condense <laughs> those more technical issues into uh, that, that, that part of the show. So we're going to make a hard right turn, a shift um, a little bit yeah. here, Lucas. Um, one of the questions I'm always curious about when we have folks in the digital studio is who have been some of your guiding forces, influences, mentors maybe um, throughout the course of your career? Anyone or anything that comes to mind? Absolutely. I think I mentioned two of my Greek law professors, um, yeah. the public, the national lawyer, and the civil procedure, at least, um, um, Emmanuel Rupnas and um, Konstantinos Karameos. So these are the two people who, who in my formative years, have really sort of allowed me to understand what arbitration is and and the range of arbitration for public and the national law, state to state to to private arbitration. And, um, and in, in that sense, I would consider to be uh, my main mentors. Okay. No, very well. The, the, that, that's good. That's well right up uh, the questions alley. Um, hopefully this one is even simpler or uh, even easier. What kind of books are you into or what are you reading right now? What's on your bookshelf? I'm, I'm, I'm reading two books at the moment. Um, I'm reading a book which is a mixture of history and travel book by, and, and it's a book that I'm reading again uh, after many years by William Dalrymple called From the Holy Mountain, which is um, uh, sort of Dalrymple as a Scottish write, travel writer. He uh, does a trip that a monk made in, in, in 550 AD, but he does it in the 1980s, 1990s. So tries to contrast, um, and that's through primarily sort of um, sort of near Middle East. This is quite a quite an amazing book. Um, I'm also reading a book that um, a colleague who I met over coffee gave me, um, which is called Honor Bound, and, and this is a, an Indian lawyer, Saros Zarala, who has been the first um, non-white sort of um, uh, solicitor in, in not, but with his own firm in the city of London, and and who has been quite uh, involved in a very number of cases, and uh, so. It, it's it's a biography, effectively, but with a lot of interesting uh, anecdotes and things that I have not I've not seen before. Sure, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, okay, very good. And we'll uh, we'll include show uh, links in the show notes to those to those books. Along that same line, um, music. What kind of music are you into? What do you like to listen to? Um, my music taste is quite eclectic. Um, okay. I like Pink Martini very much, and I'm actually okay. going to see them in their um, next tour, whether in London or Albert Hall, in, in about a month's time. Um, I like um, jazz, um, uh, particularly Latin jazz, uh, and I, I like um, sort of uh, Baroque classical music. So when I drive, is um, typically classical music. Uh, when I write, very often is um, sort of uh, sort of mellower jazz music. But when I work, I normally have music. Yeah, I, I'm similar. When if I'm listening to music, 
uh, I can't listen to uh, music in any languages that I understand because I just get distracted listening to the lyrics. <laughs> yes, I mean, I mean, one thing that I used to when I write bigger pieces is is, is an album by Zbigniew Preissner, who is um, a, a Polish composer who does primarily music for films, soundtracks. But okay. he has composed um, a, a, a symphony by effectively taking music from his various films, sort of, the various colors from Kislovsky's movies, and 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 he has arranged as a, as a concert. And, and this kind of write up of crescendo, and at about 90 minutes, I realized that I have to stop and go for a walk. <laughs> you know that, that that's really important. You know, people undervalue um, stopping and getting up and just going for a walk in the middle of your drafting, and it's something that you know you got to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I find as much as I like writing, um, it can be a bit agonizing in the sense that uh, uh, for me, when I write, it's very important to arrange what I'm writing in, in small pieces because if I'm working on a bigger chapter or section, uh, until I finish that, not, I don't sleep very well. So because I go to bed with what I've been writing during the day and I wake up with, with where, where I stand. So, um, so I try to sort of organize some papers in some sections that are manageable, so we can do that for three or four days, and then I can have a couple of days off and it's better. Sure. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm good for um, periodically. You know, just need to take a walk. You know, just look away from the screen, stretch, maybe go to the gym. Any of those types of things is great to break up uh, the the rhythm. And the thing I do to maintain some sort of a balance is to go to my garden and sort of admire how it has not died over the uh, heat of, 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 of the summer this year. So um, so it, with the recent rain, everything is blossoming again. It's wonderful. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, okay. We're coming down to the last several questions here um, and uh, we're wrapping up. Um, and I, I think they're pretty sh uh, short ones. This first one, you've kind of addressed a little bit, but I'd be curious if you had anything else that you would add here um, and kind of closing thoughts about it. Um, if you were approached by a current student or a recent graduate or you know someone that's looking to break into your into the field, what advice would you give them to prepare them? Yeah, I mean, I, I get that a lot because I get being approached by a lot of people. I sure. think the first thing <laughs> I'm saying is 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 effectively two things you have to they have to be patient and I often tell them that impatience is an indication of youth and they have to be persistent because in order to break into arbitration you need to really embrace the discipline and understand it and go to events um, read sort of um, um, speak to people all the time but but uh, sort of I, th I think arbitration work is very much like London buses. Sometimes you work for, for long and nothing comes, and then to come at the same time. That's true for arbitrators as well as as new entrants in the, into the process. So, so th that level of patience and persistence is critical. But at the same time, I think it's important that somebody get as as much knowledge um, and specialization you can can do an LLM, do a, a diploma, do a course attend events. There's so many events for free these days. I mean, that's one of the good things of the pandemic. So, so, so get as much knowledge as you can. I think that that's all great advice. And those are things that we've echoed with other guests on the show. And I think you can't 
you can't undervalue that is while you don't necessarily need to have your very first job be in arbitration, getting to know the language, the key points, the key issues, and knowing how to navigate them is um, it's critical because otherwise you're sort of just wandering without a map. And, and, and the other thing that people forget is that arbitration is not about, it's not just technical, but you need to have good people skills. I mean, yes. when people ask me about who is going to be a good arbitration lawyer, especially if it's a party appointed arbitrator, it's somebody who is a, a genuinely nice person and who will relate to the chair rather than alienate the chair. Um, so, so these personal skills and the personal skills, so the soft, so the, the small talk is, is, is very important. And, and it's a skill that young lawyers who want to enter the, into the reputation world have to have as well. Absolutely true. Um, and maybe that's one that we've maybe even overlooked in, in speaking about on the show. Yeah, the people skills, the soft skills of being able to hold a conversation, to be able to, um, how you carry yourself, how you represent, critical things, critical, critical, critical. Okay, last, uh, th this is a fun one I hope for you, um, uh, Professor. It's 5 p.m. on a Friday and you're somehow completely free for the weekend, no survey work, no arbitrator, no, no council stuff. You just can do whatever you want. How are you gonna spend that weekend? Do whatever, yeah, whatever you want. Well, I mean, uh, ever since I had kids, I don't work for the weekend. So it's, it's in, <laughs> at least while they're um, uh, around. So five o'clock is around the time they come from school. Um, and therefore, it's not the quiet time. So uh, they're very hungry and they're very energetic. Um, and therefore, I will be spending time with them, sort of trying to get how the week was, how the day was. and and sort of really sort of just try to forget that I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer and just um, realize that one of my prior roles in life is being a dad um, uh, and a husband. So so when they go to sleep, then it's, it's very likely that I will open a good um, bottle of wine and have a glass of wine with my wife. No, I think that, that, that is a fine way to spend the weekend or spend some downtime. That, that's a great one. Um, this is the last question for you. Um, any shout outs, any tips of the cap you want to give to the listeners or to the people out in the audience? Well, uh, as I say, I mean, I, I'm, I am who I am because of all these um, colleagues that I have had, all the students I have had. Um, and, and, and of course, uh, my, my parents always taught me that my, I have to do my, my, my work and I have to do it properly. <laughs> and uh, I have to put my, my head down and do what needs to be done. But uh, it, it is um, sort of the the broad community of arbitration and arbitration students who have enriched me. Um, and, and and I think it's not what you give, it's also what you take from the other people. And I think having been an academic and a practitioner for all these years, um, this sort of, sort of back and forth of giving and taking has been very, very beneficial. So I, I, I learn from every single interaction from people, uh, with people. I learn from them. I learn, um, I, 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 I like to be challenged. Uh, and therefore, um, although I've been doing this job for quite some time, uh, I think that's what keeps me young. Yeah, no, very well, very well. Well, I'll, I'll add one shout out there. I'm gonna add Jason Siwiak. Um I, I may have mispronounced Sorry, your last name. Yes. Um, who is the kind enough to introduce us and then help make this happen. So 
tip of the cap to you out there, Jason. And, uh, and all right, well, look, uh, Professor, the time has, as it always does, zoomed by. Um, you know, we're at the top of our, the end of our time together. Thank you so much for coming to the studio. It was my pleasure. You want to sign us off? I would be delighted. So I'm Lucas Mistelis, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. All right. By show of hands, how many of you enjoyed this episode? Okay, let me count. That's one, two, three. Uh, okay. So, survey says, <laughs> okay, I'm joking a bit, but I, for one, got so much out of that episode, and I hope that you did too. I think you can tell from the interview, but Lucas is just such a relaxed individual that it sort of almost masks just how much he knows about the field, historically, contemporaneously, and in just so many different contexts. It was great having him on the show. Before we get out of here this week, I want to mention one thing. It's that time of year again. This the season. That's right. Within the next two weeks, we will have a whole new VisMoot problem and thousands of students across the globe who will be sitting down for another edition of the VisMoot. For those of you in and around the Moot, take notice. We've got something special in the works for the Vis season kickoff that you won't want to miss. Today's episode was produced by MoBeta Solutions. Show music produced by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. That's it for us this week. Thank you for your support, and I hope you enjoyed the bonus episode this week. Until next time, you've been listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.